again, uh, welcome to Freedom. I'm so glad to see you here today. Let me take a moment to welcome in those of you who are joining us online. We always are so glad to have you be a part of worship in that way. We love uh, being connected to you and feel like you're an extended part of our family. Uh, Today we are uh, at the midpoint of a series that we've been in now for several weeks in the 23rd Psalm. If you've got your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to go ahead and turn there with me. We're looking at the best known and most absolutely most popular, most loved chapter of the Old Testament, uh, Psalm 23, a Psalm of David. Uh, Just six little verses which from beginning to end remind us of the goodness of God and just a variety of different ways that God wants to pour out His goodness on us. I I don't know about you, but I just get so sick at, at times of so much bad news, you know, and I know they're just feeding what we ask for, but but the news media, the the old adage of if, if it bleeds, it leads, you know, whatever, however gory and bad it can be, that's what's going to lead the news. I just get to the point I can't hardly watch it anymore. I just get so tired of bad, discouraging news and just get ready to hear good news. And so I'm just glad to tell you I've got nothing but good news for you this morning. If you came for bad news, you're in the wrong place because... It's good news that God loves you and he wants to show you his favor. And so we're going to be looking at that today. Now, we've all heard the old Arab uh, proverb that says, all sunshine and no rain makes a desert. And it sounds like he was talking about uh, our region here in the past few months. I think we've been working on on making one of those. But we all all know the meaning behind that, that if, if your life was always just sunny days, if everything just went smoothly and comfortably for you, it wouldn't really turn you into much of a person, would it? You'd be a weakling of a person. I would be too. They're going to have to be rainy days. They're going to have to be difficult days. The truth of the matter is every life has ups and downs. It has highs and lows, good seasons, difficult seasons, mountaintop experiences, and valleys. And that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about the seasons of life when you go through real valleys. We hear a lot about valleys in the scriptures. It's always a symbol of the the dark times, the difficult times, the painful seasons. And the 23rd Psalm has a wonderful promise for us about those seasons of life and what God wants to do. And so I want to take a moment to walk back through the opening verses that we've already looked at. I'm not going to reteach these to you. And then we'll consider the fourth verse that we're focused on today. The passage begins, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. A reminder that God doesn't want us stressed out and anxious about how we're going to deal with the difficulties and and challenges of life, that he wants to provide your every need. And then he says, He makes me lie down in green pastures, and he leads me beside quiet waters. And we said that's just a great reminder of how God wants you to find real peace and balance and rest in life. He's not trying to figure out how he can get more done through you and get more out of you. He wants you to have space and margin in your life to enjoy the things that matter the most. And then he goes on to say, he restores my soul. We talked about how that refers to the fact that all of us are damaged. We all carry around damage from the, the things that we've done that cause guilt and the things that others, others have done to us where we held grudges or where we're grieving what we've lost. And we, we're damaged by that. And God wants to truly heal and restore us on the inside. And then last week we talked about how he guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Another translation says, he guides me along the right paths. And how God is saying, I don't want you to just have to figure out life. I don't want you to just have to make it up as you go along. I want to be your personal guide. I want my spirit to be so involved in the everyday experiences of life that you don't have to stress over decisions because you'll know that there is a good God leading through every step of your life and how comforting that is. And then we get to the verse for today where he says, even though... I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I fear no evil, for you are with me. That's a wonderful promise, isn't it? When you pass through even the valley of the shadow of death, you don't have to be afraid. Now, it's interesting to note that there is literally a valley of the shadow of death in Israel. 
You can visit the valley of the shadow of death. It is a physical place. David was familiar with it, the writer of this psalm. He certainly had passed through it many times. Now, I've been up and down the Holy Land. I haven't been through the valley of the shadow of death, but I know what it's like, and I've been through a valley in that region that's very similar to it. It's very narrow with, with real stark high walls as much as 800 feet high, and uh, it's a very dark place. The place that I've been to in the Holy Land that's very similar to the valley of shadow of death, if, if you've ever been to Petra in Jordan, the valley you have to walk through to get there is kind of a creepy place because you realize, boy, if you hit on like a wild animal or bandits, you got nowhere to go because it's just sheer rock walls on both sides that go up hundreds of feet. And, and at places it's so narrow, two people standing side by side, fingertip to fingertip, you could touch each wall of the canyon between you know two people. It's just, it's so narrow. And so there's the, the valley of the shadow of death is just like that. There's very little time of day that there's any sunlight in there. It's just a place of, of shadows and where you feel just just bound in. And that's the kind of place that David is talking about when he says, even when I walk through the most dark and dangerous place where it seems like there's so little light, it's just a, this dark, scary place, I don't have to be afraid. And today, that's what we want to press into why we can live without fear and how we can not only survive but discover joy and victory through even the valley seasons of life. Now, I'm going to do three different things in the time that we've got together this morning. First of all, we're going to consider just some, just very briefly some things that we need to know about valleys because we've we got to get our heads on straight about that. And then I'm going to spend most of the time sharing with you from Scripture four different pictures of, of literal valleys in the Old Testament that become for us pictures of the major valleys of life that we're going to have to deal with. And then we're going to go back to the 23rd Psalm and be reminded of three things that we've got to hold on to if we're going to find real victory and joy through even the valley seasons of life. But as we do this, uh, I'm going to share several stories with you from Scripture. And a lot of these are war stories. Uh, I, I, I love war stories. When I was growing up, man, I just I would read every book I could get my hands on about, about war. So maybe this is more of a guy's sermon than a lady's sermon. But ladies, I'll tell you the truths that we'll get to behind all of these stories I think your heart will connect with as well. But uh, a, lot of, a lot of war stories today, so bear with me. I'll start with one. In, uh, in the Old Testament, probably not a real familiar story for, for some of us, but in 1 Kings 20, it tells the story during a not really happy season in the history of Israel about when uh, Ahab, who was not a godly man, he was the king over Israel, and uh, the king of Aram, Ben-Hadad, decided that he wanted to overrun Israel, attack Samaria, and uh, carry off all the women and children that, that he found attractive and all the gold and silver. And so he brought together an alliance of 32 kings who were going to march in and conquer Israel, and it was just... It wasn't even going to be much of a battle because they'd assembled an army of more than 100,000 and Israel could only muster about 7,000 to oppose them. And so when they, they marched in, it didn't even look like it was a battle worth fighting. It was just going to be so overwhelming. But uh, the Lord intervened and he gave a, a great victory to Israel and tens of thousands of the Arameans and these other thir 32 other kings and their armies were defeated. And so it's just a miraculous thing that God had done. And so those who survived, Ben-Hadad and some of his uh, generals, his senior generals who had survived that, they were licking their wounds in the months that followed and trying to figure out how could they have lost this. This was an unlosable situation, and yet they had suffered a terrible defeat. And as they talked about it, they came up with their answer to why they had lost this whole thing. And what they decided was the reason that they had lost the battle was because they had fought it in the hills and the mountains. And they came to the conclusion that the God of the Israelis was a God of the hills and the mountains, but he was not a God of the valleys. And in fact, that's, that's exactly what they say uh, in 1 Kings 20, 23. They said, Israel's gods are the gods of the hills. And last time we fought them, we fought them in the hills, and that's why they defeated us. But th this is the part I want you to hear. But if we fight them in the valleys where they are weak, we will defeat them there. I want you to understand you have an enemy still today and he still uses that same tactic. If we attack them in the valleys where they're weak, we can defeat them there. 
we tend to be sort of foolish at times about giving the enemy, Satan and his demons, credit for every difficulty that we ever face. I want to tell you, most of your difficulties don't come from the devil. They just come because we live in a broken world and we're broken people and, and bad things happen. But when those bad things pile up and it becomes a valley kind of season, that's when the enemy goes hard to work to say, oh, in the valleys is where they're vulnerable. In the valleys is where they're weak, and we can defeat them there. And that's when they really try and pile on. But I want to tell you how the rest of this story goes. So they call together another vast army, this time almost 150,000 strong, and they march in for a second consecutive year, the same kind of deal. Ben-Hadad sends word, if you want to survive, send us out your women and your children and all your gold and silver, and we're going to take the good-looking ones and all the gold and silver. And the Lord speaks a word that that is not how this thing's going to go down. Even though, I mean, it's pretty cool that God's faithful to his people even when they have a pagan king. And, and Ahab was a rotten king. And so uh, as things unfold, they, the Lord tells him how to send out 232 of his junior commanders. And, and then they'll lead the army out. And there's only 7,000 facing this army of way over 100,000. And it looks like, again... There's no way they could win. And God gives them this massive victory. A hundred thousand fall in one day and another twenty-five or thirty thousand fall shortly thereafter. And, and God gives this huge, huge victory. But what the Lord says in the middle of all that in First Kings 20, 28 is this is what the Lord says. Because the Arameans think that the Lord is a God of the hills and not a God of the valleys. I will deliver this vast army into your hands and you will know that I am the Lord. A great reminder that as much as we would love to just go from mountaintop to mountaintop to mountaintop in our experience, just always in victory, just woo, life is good, always winning. Much of life is spent in the valleys. You spend a lot of your life between the mountaintop experiences. In fact, I would dare say well over half of it. But God says, I want you to understand I'm a God of the valleys too. I can't read that. I know this is silly, but I can't ever read that passage without being reminded of, of a goofy experience many years ago when I was a student pastor, and we were doing a mission trip in North Carolina, and I'd taken my youth group uh, up to close to Murphy, North Carolina, and we would all get sort of assigned to different churches to go to that would would work with us, and so you'd worship with them on Sunday. So the church that we were assigned to, I'm not making this up, it was Hanging Dog Baptist Church in Hanging Dog, North Carolina. If you hadn't been to Hanging Dog, North Carolina, you hadn't lived. It's a real place and a real church, and uh, it is up in the mountains, to say the least. And So we get there really early on Sunday morning. We get there ahead of all the people, but the pastor's out. He's there, and he's out in front of the church. It's in the woods, and we're lucky to find the place. And I walked up and introduced myself. I'm kind of walking up ahead of the youth group. And he spoke to me. And it didn't sound like English. It was, but it didn't sound like English. And I'm a bit of a redneck, but I'm like, wow, even my redneck English, I can't, I can't quite get this. And, and when he spoke to me, he just kind of spit it out really crazy. And I was like, ooh, come again? And he said something that sounded like that again. And I'm like, I'm sorry, I still didn't get that. Could you say it one more time? I said, I I, didn't, I still didn't quite understand. And then he finally goes, We is mountain people, and mountain people is good people, is you flatland people. I was sort of stumped by that for a moment. I'm like, am I a flatlander? I believe in a round earth. Am I a flat? I'm like, well, if there's two categories, mountain people and flatland people, I'm pretty sure I'm not a mountain man. So, yes, sir, I think I am. Well, let me tell you, they do it a bit different in the mountains, but... Uh, I realize when I think about life, most of us live in the flatlands. Most of us don't live in the, the mountains. The mountain people are good people and the mountain experiences are good experiences. But most of us do live the majority of our lives in the flatlands. And God says, I am a God of the mountains and of those flatlands. And so I want us to consider together today. First of all, some things that we need to know about those times when we're in the valleys, we're in the dark seasons. Three things, and I'm just going to say these pretty quickly, but, but you do need to bear these in mind. The first one is this, 
Valleys are a normal part of life, and they are inevitable, and we shouldn't feel shocked or unloved whenever we pass through a valley. Everybody in this room, everybody watching and listening online, you're going to go through seasons of sickness. You're going to go through seasons of defeat, difficulty, probably seasons of depression, sometimes seasons that just feel like total despair. And it's not because you're a freak and it's not because God hates you. It's just a part of life. In the Old Testament, when God gave his people the land that he had been promising for generations, for centuries, it says in Deuteronomy 11 about that land, the land that you will soon take over is a land of hills and valleys. What's the point of that for us? Remember, the Old Testament stories are giving us snapshots, like color pictures of these big realities of life. And that's a picture of the fact that when you're right in the middle of God's will, it's going to have hilltops and valleys while you're doing the will of God. And I think we we imagine that if if I'm in the will of God, I should be on the mountaintop all the time. And it doesn't work that way. The will of God is hills and valleys. So Peter says in 1 Peter 4.12, Don't be surprised when you're tested by troubles or painful suffering as if something unusual is happening to you. Because it's not. So, so don't say, why me? Instead say, why not me? I, I'm a human. Jesus had to suffer. Jesus had to go through dark, difficult times. So certainly I will too. The second truth is right hand in hand with that. And that is, valleys happen to everyone. Good things happen to bad people, and bad things happen to good people, and vice versa. It's going to come everybody's way. Psalm thirty-four, nineteen says, The good man does not escape all troubles. He has them too, but the Lord helps him in each and every one. We're so prone to say when we're in a, in a dark season and a hard time, and especially if it gets stretched out much, well, God must be punishing me. Why is God doing this to me? I promise you. If you're a child of God, I promise you, God isn't punishing you. Now, we're, we're going to press into this more next week, why you can be sure. It's not punishment from God when you're going through a dark season. This is a part of life. And the third thing to, to bear in mind is just this, and this is the hardest part, and that is that valleys are unpredictable. This is the greatest challenge about those seasons, isn't it? You don't get to control when they come. Don't you wish that you could? Don't you wish that you could at least manage when they're going to come so that you could arrange it to where when the biggest challenges of life come, they come when your marriage is at a really healthy, stable point and where financially you're pretty much on top of things and you're caught up and you've got some reserve and where you're rested and and really healthy and it's like, now I'm ready. Bring on the challenges, but it doesn't ever happen that way, does it? The valleys come at the worst time, the most inopportune time, and you don't have any control over that. And do you ever notice how quickly they can come? I mean, how rapidly a day can go from being great to suddenly being one of the darkest that you've seen in a long time? I mean, it just takes like one phone call, one encounter, sometimes one sentence, and everything seems like just drops out from under you. It comes unexpectedly, and it's, it's just so unpredictable and beyond our control. Proverbs 27.1 says, You have no idea what tomorrow will bring. Isn't that the truth? And yet we don't have to live in fear of that at all. We don't have to be afraid of, Oh, things are going smoother today, but I bet that just means tomorrow is going to be terrible. Probably going to be a storm coming tomorrow. You don't have to live like that. We don't know what tomorrow is going to bring but we can walk in confidence. So the next thing I want to do is just take a, a few minutes to unpack for you from the Scriptures four significant valleys in the Bible and in life. And chances are you either already have or will experience all four of these valleys. There's probably at least one of these that right now, or at least very recently, you can identify with. And I'm going to tell you a little story with each one of these from Scripture and then unpack what that means for us. The first one is the Valley of Sedim. Everybody say Sedim. The Valley of Sedim. Now this is a story that you may not be really familiar with. It's from Genesis 14. This isn't one that you were probably told in Sunday school when you were in grade school. Uh, I think, I may be mistaken about this, but I think that this is the first battle that's ever recorded in Scripture. It's one of the first battles that's ever recorded in history that takes place 
And so the players in this are going to sound unfamiliar to you. That's okay. You don't have to really lock into who they are. I'll just summarize it this way. In Genesis 14, there are four kings from a region known as Shinar. It, it becomes, eventually it becomes Babylon. It's what is today Iraq. And they march into the Holy Land from that part of the country. So they're marching in from the northeast into what we know today as Palestine, Israel, the Holy Land. And they attack five kings in that region. These are kings you don't know and, and you wouldn't care anything about. The only reason that they matter really in the biblical account is because Abraham's nephew Lot and his family live in the region where these five kings rule. Two of the cities in that, that region are Sodom and Gomorrah, and so you know how they, they play into the story. So these four kings from Iraq, they come into the Holy Land, and they attack, and they win a great victory, and they subjugate all the people of that region to them for a span of 12 years. And after 12 years of having to pay taxes to these foreign powers and living under their rule, the five kings and the people of, of the cities that they rule over decide, we're sick of this. We want to be a free people, and so we're going to rise up. We're going to do a good thing. We're going to rebel. We're going to cast off the chains of oppression, and we are going to be a free people once again. Sounds like a good thing, doesn't it? Good idea, right? Not so much. Just sounded good. So they, in the 13th year, they throw off the chains of oppression. They rebel, and word gets back to what is now Iraq. The four kings there hear about that, and they raise up their armies again, and they come marching down into the Holy Land, and once again, they win a, a big victory over those kings, and it, it's a rout. It, it's really not even a, a lengthy battle. And now, because they have been defeated, these five kings, including the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, they are they're trying to flee and get away. And it says in Genesis 14.10, Now the valley of Sedim was full of tar pits, and when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of the men fell into them, fell into these bituminous pits. It's like a it's naturally occurring stuff a lot in that region. It's like a cross between asphalt and, and crude oil almost. And when you step into a, a place that's a, a deposit of that, you can sink way down to the point you can, you can literally drown in it or just be stuck in it where you can't get out. And it goes on to say, So the invaders plundered the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, and they took everything they had, and they also captured Abraham's nephew Lot, who was living in Sodom. Now, I'm going to say this just as an aside. Abraham wasn't a king, and he didn't rule over a city, but he was a powerful man because the hand of God was on him. And at this point, he had become a wealthy man, and he had more than 300 trained men who served him. And so even though he didn't lead an army, he heard what had happened to his nephew and, and to the people around him. And under God's leadership, he just called out his men, and he chased down these five kings and, and their armies and he won a great victory and set Lot and all of his relatives and the other people around them free and, and even got back all of their stuff. And, but, but that's not the point of what we're talking about today. The, the thing that we're focusing on is the point in the story where they're in the bind. They, they've tried to do what they thought would be a great thing to do, and they've completely failed. It's ended in just defeat, and as they try and escape their own defeat, in the valley of Sedim, they get stuck. They fall into the tar pits, and they cannot get themselves out of their defeat. And that's the picture that I want you to hold on to here. What's this valley about? What's the thing that we're talking about? It's the valley of failure. It's the dark season of your life that's really defined by some type of failure. Now, this comes to all of us. All of us are going to have seasons of failure. Sometimes a failure can be in a business. And for some, you feel the, the grossness of having gone into a business venture, maybe pursued a career or launched a business. Maybe you dreamed about it for years but it just didn't fly. It was a great idea, but for some reason it just didn't fly. It flopped. It failed. And now you're stuck with all of the financial mess that results from that. But even worse still, you are stuck in that failure and you feel like a failure. 
you're just stuck in the valley of Sedim, of failure. For some, the failures that we get stuck in feel much worse than that. For some, it's a moral failure. When you have determined that you're going to live your life a certain way, and just as a, for instance, when you have determined that you're going to give your love to one person for the rest of your life, and then you do the, the thing that has previously been unthinkable and you're unfaithful to them, it tends to leave you feeling like the worst kind of failure imaginable, that you just feel stuck in this place of how did I get here and how could I ever get myself and my mind out of this tarpet of, of just my own failure having done what I never imagined that I could do. For some, the Valley of Sedim is the failure of your marriage. I don't know that anything feels more like a failure than for a marriage to come to an end. I know personally because I've walked down that road and and you do. I mean, for it, it doesn't really, to some extent, it doesn't matter what caused it. It just still feels like the worst of failures. And it's so easy to be stuck in that place where you just feel like I'm never going to get past that. Especially if you had kids and, and you know that your kids are forever at some level going to be affected by that failure. And for whatever kind of story you try and spin around that, it just still feels like failure. Sometimes the defeat that we're stuck in is not about a relationship. Sometimes the defeat is, is about a place. I mean, your Valley of Sedim, it can be a bar. It can be a nightclub. It can be the place that continues to draw you back in and take you to a dark place where bad things happen and where you live in defeat and you can't get away from that place. For some, the Valley of Sedim, it's a computer screen. It's websites. It's, it is the, the tar pit of porn. And you're just stuck there. And it, it seems like I should just be able to turn that off. I should be able to close that and, and shut it down. And you can't because you're stuck. Alcohol. Pills. I mean, th those things can get you stuck in a place where you don't want to be. And yet, just like these kings stuck in these tar pits, no matter how hard you squirm and fight, determine, I can get myself out of this. I can fix this. The more you squirm, the more firmly entrenched you are in that tar pit. Because human effort is not going to set you free from the stickiest places that you'll wind up in life. Now here's the bad news. I'm not here to solve all your problems today. We're going to talk about some things that don't have quick one, two, three fixes. But I will throw this in as, as just a, a side note. Celebrate Recovery is designed for every tar pit that exists in the Valley of Sedim. Celebrate Recovery is like the special forces sent in to people who are stuck in pits that they cannot get themselves out of. And there is victory. They are like leaders and sponsors in CR are like Abrahams sent in by God to pull people out of sticky places. God doesn't want you to spend the rest of your life stuck in the Valley of Sedim. There's a second valley I want you to consider. And it is the Valley of Eskol. Let's hear you say that one. Yeah, that's a great word. The Valley of Eskol. Now, if you grew up in church, you are familiar with this story. Numbers 13. Very quickly, just to set the stage, we, we touched on this last week. You remember, we're centuries beyond Abraham now. Now his descendants have become a vast number of people, a million people being set free from generations of bondage in Egypt. God has done ten different plagues and brought about the deliverance of his people, and they've marched out, and the whole thing we described last week where they've come up against the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army's chasing after them, and God works miraculously, and uh, they get past the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army is defeated. And so they're on this march toward the Holy Land. And it should have only taken a few weeks. But now we are a year into the Exodus story and they still haven't gone in to take possession of the Holy Land. They're getting close. 
And they're close enough that they're now really counting the cost of what's it going to take. Because God is giving them this land that is a fantastic place where they're going to get land they didn't buy, houses they didn't build, crops that they didn't plant, and they're going to get to harvest them. And God's going, I'm just going to let you have all of that. Not because you deserve it, but because I'm a good God and I love to take care of my kids. So I'm going to give you this. But you are going to have to be involved in the process, and you're going to have to go in and fight, and you're going to have to take it city by city. It's a great picture of how God works in our lives. There are all these things that he wants to give to us, and yet we have a role to play as well if we're going to possess what God has for us. And so in Numbers 13, they're at that place of going, all right, it's time for us to go and take the land that God has promised, but shouldn't we have like a little test run? Shouldn't we check this out first? And so they come up with the idea, we're going to send in 12 spies. Surely that's a good idea, isn't it? Once again, not so much. But it seemed like a good idea. We'll send a spy from each of the 12 tribes, and those 12 guys will go in, and they'll go through whole, the whole land that God has promised, scout it out, scout the cities, look at the land, look at the produce, and see what we're going to be going to possess and what we're going up against. And so they've sent the spies in, and they've scouted out the whole land. And in Numbers 13, it says something about what they found there. In Numbers 13:23, it says, Then the spies came to the valley of Eskol. The fruit was so abundant that they cut off a grape branch, which had that it took two men to carry it back on a pole between them. Have you ever seen a statue or, or a, a painting of this? I've, I've seen multiple ones over the years. The church I go to every winter for a conference in Orlando, they've got a statue outside the church of, of, of this scene from the Valley of a Skull, where what they have found in the promised land is so just extravagant. They know that the, the folks waiting for them, waiting for their report, they're never going to believe it. It's like, you know, it's like the ultimate fishing story. He was so big. It's like they're all going to go, yeah, he's probably this big. Well, they're like, they're, they're not going to believe this. I mean, when have you ever seen a cluster of grapes that is so tall you've got to put it on a pole on men's shoulders because it hangs four or five feet down in one cluster of grapes? The, the statue I was describing outside the church, it's of, of two men, a big pole in between them and a cluster of grapes four or five feet in length. It's just gigantic. They're bringing back this kind of produce to say, you won't believe what God is giving us. It's more abundant than anything we've ever dreamed of or ever have seen. And so they bring back several things from the land to show them, but the report that they bring is a split report. And if you grew up in church, you know the Sunday school story. Ten spies say, the land is fabulous. The produce is huge. It's so much bigger than anything that we've ever seen, but we never could take possession of that land. It's just too scary. And uh, it, I put one of the lines in your, your notes, verse 33. They go on to say, of the people who live in that land, next to them we felt like grasshoppers. And that's what they thought too. They just looked like giants next to us. I, I remember growing up playing football. You know, uh, you, you always play pretty much the same teams every year. And, and I don't know how you, you get a mindset like this, but uh, the school that I played for, one of the teams we'd always play was Ashford. Ashford was a small school from a small community. But for some reason, in, among, in our school and among our football team, Ashford always had this reputation for having these just these giant corn-fed boys that were just, just bigger than grown men. And so every year when it would be Ashford week on the schedule, we just would be like, oh, man, it's going to be rough because everybody knows those Ashford boys. They're so much bigger than everybody else. They're so much bigger than us. And, and I can remember multiple seasons where you'd, you know, Ashford week would come and you'd go, you'd be in the pregame, pregame warm-ups, but you're looking down at the other end of the field where they're warming up and it's like, whew. Those boys must be seven feet tall. They are just so big from Ashford. Now, in reality, boys from Ashford aren't any bigger than boys from Pike County. But it had just gotten in our heads that those Ashford boys were just giants, and we were just like grasshoppers. Well, it wasn't that there were giants living in the land. But these Israelites, all they had known for generations was slavery. 
They'd never known victory. They, They had never fought any battles and won. They could not begin to conceive of God working through them to accomplish great victories. And so when they looked around, they were like, oh, it's a fantastic land, but we couldn't hope to conquer those big old guys. We felt like little grasshoppers next to them. Of course, there were two other spies, and their names were Joshua and Caleb, and they said, the land is great, and don't listen to what they're saying. God is absolutely going to give us that land. Well, you probably remember how the story turns out. The people believed the report of the ten, and they talked about stoning Moses and the other leadership and doing away with Joshua and Caleb and saying, let's go back and see if we can get our old jobs as slaves back. God wasn't too thrilled about that. As a result, they're going to spend 40 years wandering in the wilderness waiting for an entire generation to die off. Now, that was never God's plan. wasn't what God wanted. God wanted to give that generation the land, but they were immobilized by fear. And that is what the Valley of the Skull is about. It is the Valley of Fear. It is that place in life where something has come before you that, that locks you up, that tests your faith, and you're caught in that place of having to decide, am I going to trust God and go ahead and step in and do what I, I don't know how to do, and I don't know what the outcome's going to be, and I can't prove in advance how I'm going to get through this, but I believe God for it, or am I going to just stay where I am now? And so fear freezes us in that place. It's weird. Sometimes this valley, it doesn't come because something terrible has happened. It comes because God has put something wonderful before us. But we don't know how to go in and receive it. Because we're going to have to leave what's familiar. And leaving what's familiar is always frightening. And so then that becomes the whole valley for us. I I just don't know how I'd live. I, I don't know how I'd support myself. I don't know what I would do if I tried to follow through with that. And God's going, it's going to be so good. I want to give you so much. There's huge blessing waiting. But yeah, you are going to have to leave what's familiar. I'm amazed how many times the valley of a skull for people comes in the form of a toxic relationship. They fall in love with somebody that they just knew was going to be right for them. And then they get in a relationship. And what they find out is that they were a terrible mismatch. This boyfriend, girlfriend, living, whatever, you know, instead of being the person in their dreams, they're hoping to create nightmares. But you're in it now. And even though God is convicting you and nudging you saying you need to get out of this unhealthy relationship as toxic as it is it's familiar and you can't imagine what life would be like if you got out of that relationship and so rather than trusting God to take you through the unknown you stay in a toxic relationship now sometimes and, and trust me, God hates divorce, and I do too. I don't know that anybody that hates divorce more than people who've been through it hate it because it is, it is beyond treacherous. But one of the sad things that I've seen happen, I, I couldn't count how many times I've seen people get to this place. They get to a place that a marriage has died and ended, and it doesn't exist really in any meaningful form anymore because the marriage is over and the couple has split apart And there is no covenant in place anymore. There is nothing that remains of a marriage except in the eyes of the government that they're still married. But they are no longer living as married people regardless of the reason. It's over. But they can't move on to the next thing that God would have for them. And it becomes a sense of failure on top of failure because they not only feel the weight of feeling like my marriage failed, but I can't even pull the trigger on finishing, closing that door to move into the next door. So it's like I'm failing at failing. 
I'm, I'm failing at even just getting through this. And trust me, I am not at all lobbying for people to ever get a divorce. I'm just saying there's a lot of different bad places that people land in life and they just get stuck there. And because of fear, they won't go back and they won't go forward. They just stay stuck, afraid to do anything. That's a terrible place to be, isn't it? Some of you have been there. Some of you are there just stuck. Fear can become a huge immobilizer for us. The third valley is the Valley of Elah. And this is the one that you're going to be the most familiar with. There's actually a modern movie by that name, the Valley of Elah. The story there is contained in 1 Samuel 17. Everybody, whether you grew up in church or not, you know the story of 1 Samuel 17. Because it's the story of David and Goliath. I don't have to, t- to unpack all of that story for you. Just a quick reminder of what the stage is. David's not yet king. He's a young teenager. He's not old enough to be in the army yet. But his older brothers are. And Israel, as is the case for about a half of the Old Testament, is having a war with the Philistines. And the way things stand at this point, they're not actually fighting. They're sitting on two different hills looking at each other. And thinking about fighting. And when uh, Jesse, David's son, sends him to see how the battle's going and to take some food and supplies to his brothers, David gets there and he's appalled by what he finds. Because when he gets there, he finds that the army of Israel is camped on this hill and the army of the Philistines is camped on this hill and there's a little valley in between and the hills are so close together they can literally yell to one another across this little valley of Elah and hear what the other ones are saying and you remember what's going on here. The reason that there's no battle being fought is because there is a freak of nature living among the Philistines. He is a genetic anomaly off the charts. His name is Goliath. He's nine feet tall and he's got the the build to go with the height. He is just a freak of nature. And every day he comes out and he taunts not only the Israelites, but they and their God. And he says, we don't need to fight a battle here. We don't need to have an all-out war. Let's just have a one-on-one duel. You send out your best man and our army will send out our best man. Me. And we'll duke it out. And whoever wins wins the day, and whoever loses serves the winning army, and only one man has to die. And every day the Israelis look at each other and go, I ain't going out there and face him. And they cower in fear. And this has gone on for weeks. And so when David shows up with bread and cheese and stuff to bring to his brothers and to see what's happening in the battle, he gets there. You can just imagine, I mean, guys, you can appreciate young teenage boys like, oh, I hope I see somebody to get killed today. You know, I hope I see some blood, something exciting. He didn't see any blood. He didn't see anybody, you know, thumping each other. There's nothing going on. All they're doing is just taunting. And all the taunting coming from one side. Verse 3 of 1 Samuel 17 says, The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley of Elah between them. So what is the valley of Elah for us? It's the valley of conflict. We don't have time or need to unpack the rest of the story. We all know what unfolds. David ends up stepping in and saying, well, I'll be the man to face this guy who defies our God and and his people. And, of course, God gives a great victory because of that. But what the Valley of Elah symbolizes for us is the terrible, painful valley that we enter into when we are in a season of conflict for which there's no progress being made. You just feel the weight of the conflict. And some of you are living today in the valley of Elah. And it may not be that you're scrapping. I mean, for some of you, your marriage is the valley of Elah right now. And it may be that you're fighting every day, but it may not be that there's an open skirmish happening at all. It may look more like this valley of Elah where it's a stalemate. You're at odds with each other. And you don't have to be cussing and clawing to be in a conflict. You just feel the weight of it. You've been there before, haven't you? It's a relationship cold war where it ain't good. You just learn to coexist. We don't get along worth a flip. I'm on my hill and she's on her hill. 
And the two hills don't get together very often. At best, on our good days, we live like roommates. At worst, we live like the U.S. and the Soviet Union existed for decades. We don't like each other a whole lot, but we're not killing each other. The Valley of Conflict. You ever been? You don't have to raise your hand. I know you're probably sitting next to the person you were in that valley with, so don't raise your hand. But have you been there? Most relationships have had at least a season where you were there. Some of you are feeling the uncomfortableness of going, that's kind of describing the valley we're in right now. God does not want to leave you in that valley. He wants to help you through that valley. The fourth one is the valley of Baca. You know that's a bad place just by the name, don't you? Nothing good could be called Baca. The Valley of Baca is a literal place. It is, uh, it's outside of Jerusalem. It is a dry, dusty wasteland of desert. Pilgrims, and of course the, the Israelites each year had to go as pilgrims to Jerusalem to offer their sacrifices. And they would have to pass through Baca to get to the holy city. That was the unpleasant part of the journey because there's no water there. There's no refreshment there. There's nothing green there. It's just a place of death and barrenness. And so for the people of God, Baca became a symbol of of all of those dry times in life, seasons of, of barrenness, of grief, of sadness, Depression, And it's what the psalmist is speaking of when he says in Psalm 84, What joy for those whose strength comes from the Lord. When they walk through the valley of weeping, in Hebrew it says literally, through the valley of Baca, it will become a place of refreshing springs. Now when you're in a Baca valley in your life, you feel depressed, you feel numb, you feel like you're just going through the motions, you feel like everybody else around you is getting in on life and and has joy and you feel disconnected from all of that. It may be an all-out season of of grief over loss, but it may just be a, a season of feeling like nothing feels right. I don't feel like anything in my life is connecting the way that it's supposed to. It's the valley of grief or barrenness. But God always wants to do a work in us when we're in the valley of Baca. A work that, according to the scripture, makes it to become a place of springs and of hope. How how do you do that? How do you see a place of barrenness and depression and grief transformed to a place where there are springs and hope? I will tell you that the tears of God's people and the faith of God's people turns a desert wasteland into a place of hope. There's a wonderful true story uh, about uh, in years past when William Booth, who was the founder of the Salvation Army, you're probably familiar with that name, Uh, They were having success in what they were doing in England, and Booth felt led to try and expand the ministry of the Salvation Army to the United States many, many years ago. And so he sent his envoy, his representative to the U.S., to try and launch uh, a U.S. version of the Salvation Army. And he tried for quite a period with no success. It was a season of of just a valley of Baca for him, Just, just nothing but barrenness. Nobody receptive, getting no traction in any city that he went to. And in in frustration, this envoy sent his message back to William Booth in England. And he said, I've tried everything. I've tried prayer. I've tried music. I've tried services and special attractions. There's just nobody here interested in the good news. William Booth responded with a telegram of two words. And all he said in response was, Try weeping. When we care enough about a situation that we go before the Lord and pour out our heart and weep over what is grieving us, longing to see God move, God will take our prayers, our tears, and our faith, and He will turn 
a dry desert wasteland into a place of refreshing springs by His presence and His power. Now when we go through any of these valleys, whether it's fear or failure or conflict or barrenness and depression, whatever kind of valley you're in, there are some things you've got to remember and hold on to. And I want to close out with just three thoughts. These are pretty simple and straightforward. And the first one is this. You've got to remember, I am not alone. God is with me whether I feel it or I don't. That's what the psalmist says in verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil for you are with me. Whatever kind of valley you find yourself in, you can rest assured of this, you are not in that valley by yourself. Now there are some key words in this verse that I, I want you to take notice of. And, and I'm just going to mention three of these quickly. One of them is through. He says, when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death. We think of it as a pit that we, I mean, when you're in it, it feels like a pit that's just going to hold you down forever. But it is not. It is a valley that has an opening at the other end. And if the Lord brings you to it, He's going to bring you through it. So you keep your eyes looking ahead and you remember, if He brought you to it, He'll bring you through it. And if you have to say that ten times a day, every day, if He brought me to it, He'll bring me through it. He's leading me through the valley. There is another side. There is a, another opening beyond this. The second word I want you to notice is, is the word you. You probably haven't caught this just reading this psalm, but for three verses, the opening three verses, everything he said about God has been third person. Now, it's not that that's impersonal, but, you know, we can talk in a real impersonal way about God and He's out there, and, and, and he's doing this or that. And it and it'd be a concept of a far-off, distant God. But the moment that David starts talking about the most difficult things that he has to walk through in life, the darkest valleys of his life, he's no longer talking about God in third person. It has become second person. It is you. God, I'm talking about you, and I'm talking to you. There is nothing that causes the transcendent to become Imminent, immediately present with us as quickly as pain will do it. It's easy to think about God in distant third-person terms, isn't it? You know, God out there, the eternal one over all creation. He is all of that. But I want to tell you, when you're going through your darkest season, you don't need a far-off distant God who's the God of the whole universe. You need the God who is right there with you. God, I'm talking to you. I need you to be here with me. It needs to be first person and second person. I need you here. And David said, that's exactly what I found. I found God is the one who is right here with me now. And the third final word I want you to notice in this verse is the word shadow. Passing through the valley of the shadow of death. Some things I want you to consider about shadows. First of all, you ever notice that shadows are always bigger than the real thing? I'm six feet tall, but against the setting sun, I'll cast a shadow that's 15 feet long. The shadow is always bigger and scarier than the reality of the thing. Shadows scare us. Shadows make things feel so big. And usually whatever it is that feels like it's overshadowing us, overwhelming us, feels bigger than the reality. I guarantee you it's not as big as God. second thing about a shadow is just this. Shadows don't hurt you. You ever been run over by a shadow? I have a bunch of times. Every morning when I go to the gym, I park on that side of Section Street. And I have to cross the street coming into the rising sun. And cars are always passing me. And their shadows run over me every morning as I stand there and wait to cross the road. And I've never had to go to the hospital because I was run over by a shadow. Shadows can pass over you. And they may scare you. Sometimes they will. You ever had a shadow just scare you? Sometimes they'll do that. They scare my dog all the time. But they don't hurt you. Final thing to notice about a shadow. The presence of a shadow assures you 
of the presence of a light. You can't have a shadow without a light beyond it. If there's a shadow being cast on you, then the light of God's presence is radiating around that. You can't have a shadow without a light. And when you're in the valley of the shadow of death, you can focus on the shadow or you can focus on the light. If you focus on the shadow, you're probably going to be scared and immobilized. If you focus on the light, you'll find hope. It is the presence of God that makes any situation not only tolerable, but it can be a place of joy again. Jesus said, I am the light of the world, and he who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So stop focusing on the bills. Stop focusing on the lost job. Stop focusing on the the bad relationship or the divorce. Focus on the light. Job 12, 22 says, God uncovers deep things out of darkness, and he brings into light even black gloom and the shadow of death. God is bringing good things to light even as we pass through the season of shadows. Psalm seventy three twenty eight says, As for me, all I need is to be close to God. I have made the Lord God my place of safety, and he will be that. He will be with you. Second thing to remember is this. Remember that God will use the valley for my good. The whole 23rd Psalm is about the goodness of God from start to finish. And The valley that you're in could be caused by a whole lot of different things, most of them having nothing to do with God. God grieves over a lot of the valleys that we're in. It's not that he caused them, but he is busy working out a way to use that hard experience for our good. Romans 5, 3 and 4 says, We can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they help us develop endurance, and endurance develops strength of character. Your failures, your worst failures, your biggest losses, your biggest defeats and setbacks, God is going, I'm not going to waste that. I absolutely would not waste that pain, that difficulty. We're going to use that to to develop endurance and strength of character that is going to endure. Everybody remember who Stephen Curtis Chapman is, the songwriter and singer, been around forever. You probably know this, but maybe you don't, but several years ago, his daughter was killed in a tragic freak accident. If I remember right, I think she was run over. It was, it was an awful story. And uh, in his book, Between Heaven and the Real World, he, he writes, I just want to read a couple of excerpts from his book, but he writes concerning that experience and what followed. He says, Jesus tells us in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. He says there's a, another story being told that we don't always see. Frankly, if I didn't believe that, I'd be an extremely bitter and angry man. My little girl's death underlined and solidified what I know and believe, but it made it more real. When there was nothing else to hold on to, I heard myself say, God, I'm going to trust you and worship you, and it's not because there's any audience watching. I am going to bless your name, whether you give or you take away. He goes on to say, my daughter died from a freak accident. Previously in life, I'd gone 50 feet below sea level, and I thought it was dark down there, but I also learned that God was with me there. But now, I was pushed 100,000 feet below sea level, and it was darker than I could ever have imagined. But I found the same thing was true down there as well. I remember that I'm not alone, and I remember that God has a good purpose for my valley. You want to talk about a dark valley. I don't know that there is a darker valley on earth than having to bury your own child. And Stephen Curtis Chapman said, as black and dark as that season was, what I found there was the presence of God. It was real. He was real. He was near me. He was with me. And he was changing me for the better even in that. That's what he does. Hosea 2.15 says this, I will transform the valley of trouble into a gateway of hope. Some of you needed that verse today. God transforming the valley of trouble into a gateway of hope. Colossians 1.11 says, God will strengthen you with his own great power so that you will not give up when troubles come, but you will be patient. 
God is promising not only to be present with you, but to pour out all the power you need to get through it. And the third and final thing I'll share with you today is this. The final thing to remember is that there is a reward that comes for enduring the hard seasons and honoring God and how you do that. Remember that your reward will last. That the valley isn't the end of the story. 2 Corinthians 4.17, Paul, who had lots of valleys in his life, said this, For our present troubles are small and won't last very long, yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them all and will last forever. I have a feeling that when we get to heaven and we start seeing the incredible reward that we have because of the goodness of God, but how he rewards us for the things that we've endured and the times that we've been faithful to him, that we're going to pretty quickly say, why in the world did I stress about that? Why did I fret? That was so short in comparison to an eternal reward that I get. And God is rewarding us in line with what we have endured and how faithful we have been and how we've trusted him through the difficult seasons. I don't know what you're going through right now, but of this I am absolutely sure. If you belong to God, you've got a shepherd who wants to lead you through it and beyond it. But for some of us, there's one more valley that we need to consider. I'm not going to tell you a story around this valley. I'm just going to remind you of the name of the valley, and it's from the Scriptures. Joel 3.14 says this, Multitudes, yes, multitudes are in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. For some people in the room, some people watching and listening online, Today, the valley that you're in, it's just that. It's the valley of decision. You have to decide whether you're going to have a shepherd in life leading you, providing for you, being present with you, and getting you through the hardest times, or whether you're going to do it on your own. God is so good, but he's not forceful in how he relates to us. He says to you, I want to be your God. I want to be your father. I want to be your shepherd. I promise I'll provide for you, I'll protect you, I will make life better, exponentially better. And I'll never let you go through any difficulty that I won't be there with you, sustaining you, carrying you through. But you must decide. Here's your valley of decision. Will you let God, the one true God, be your shepherd? And it's a lifetime decision. You don't have to train for it. You don't have to ramp up to it. But you have to decide. Here's the valley of decision. You decide. And it really boils down to this. Are you going to choose to live life on your own terms? And you get to maintain control. You get to call the shots. But you're limited to your own strength and resources. Will you live life that way or will you say God I'm pretty sick of me being in charge I want you to be the Lord and Master of my life I want a shepherd and I want you to be the shepherd of my life you must choose it really is that simple and if you do you become his for life and he is a good shepherd and he takes good good care of his sheep, who, by the way, happen to be his children. Would you join me as we turn to him in prayer? God, we celebrate your goodness. We thank you for your love and your presence. I pray today for many who are going through a dark and difficult valley in life. Thank you for the promise of your sweet presence with us. And I pray that in a fresh way, oh God, you would draw near to those whose hearts are struggling, maybe feeling a sense of failure or fear or just locked up in conflict. Oh God, would you come and, and bring your, your presence, your love to bear on our situations would you sustain us and see us through? Would you give us a glimpse of life in the future that you have planned? And Lord, for some who 
need today to trust you as their shepherd for the first time, I pray that you'd give gifts of faith at this time. I just want to invite you, if today your decision is, I'm ready, I am ready for God to be my shepherd. I want Jesus to be the Lord and Master of my life. I want to know forgiveness of sins and being right with God. I want to invite you just from your own heart. You don't have to say the words aloud. God hears your heart. But would you just in the depth of your heart pray a simple prayer with me that just says this. If you want Jesus to become your shepherd and your Lord, would you pray, Jesus, I need you. I let go of being in control of my life and I hand my life over to you. Would you forgive my sins? Would you give me a clean slate and a fresh start? And would you walk with me through every part of my life? Thank you for loving and accepting me. Oh God, thank you for hearing and answering our prayers. Thank you for how you do love and care for us. We pray this with grateful hearts, Jesus, in your name.